Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 1. So men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching their brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church went, sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No! We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Then the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And I'm going to jump down to verse 22. <clears throat> then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers, and with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. <coughs> Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. This is God's word. <coughs> Good morning, folks, again. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. My sermon will be uh, shorter this morning to, than usual to make space for communion. So... Let me get straight into it. <clears throat> Firstly, I'll go over what happens here. And secondly, I want to make a few small points about how we do church, why we do church the way we do, and what that means for us. And thirdly, I want to talk about the gospel and its continuing power in our life to surprise us again and again and again and again. Okay, 
So firstly, what happens in this story? Well, it goes like this. Uh, Paul is up in his church in Antioch, uh, and lots of people who are not Jews are coming to faith. To Jewish people, he is preaching the good news of the final fulfillment of the promises of God. And to the non-Jews, although it looks different, but it's the same thing, he's preaching that they too can be a part of God's family and receive salvation from the wrath of God at their sins and into peace with God through faith in Jesus alone. And a lot of people are liking what they're hearing. A lot of them are saved uh, because of this preaching. And a lot of them were not Jews, right? And you'd think everyone would be happy about this, but there were some who were not happy about one thing in particular. And it was how these new people were living after they got saved. Rather than becoming more like Jews, they were, apparently anyway, continuing to live like non-Jews, just with Jesus as their God. Now this was not good enough for some of the Jews. And some Jewish believers uh, in Jesus came up to Antioch from Jerusalem and told the people that they were particularly unhappy about the fact that some of the men who had been converted had not got the chop, circumcision. And they were insisting that unless they got circumcised, they couldn't be saved. So, Paul and Barnabas are incensed by this. And the church in Antioch decides that a ruling is needed. So, they send the two boys up to Jerusalem. And there, as we have seen, there is a a meeting with other leaders in the Jerusalem church. They have a debate. Peter the Apostle weighs in with some of his understanding of what's been happening. And then Paul and Barnabas regale them with stories of what God has been doing with these people. And then lastly, James stands up and he references uh, some Old Testament verses pointing to the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. Right? And this, it appears is enough to convince the group that Paul and Barnabas are preaching the truth and these folk who want to get the non-Jews to live under the laws of Moses are wrong. And the practical outcome then is that they write a letter, they send it back to Antioch with some of their representatives, which more or less says, you don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to follow these laws they're telling you to follow to be saved. That's it. No, there's, there's an awful lot in there, actually. And as I said, uh, I just want to make um, a couple of small points uh, and talk about the gospel, right? But firstly, one of the things uh, that I want to say is that Presbyterians have uh, done a lot of work with this chapter, and they use it as a proof text for a way of running the church according to the Presbyterian way, right? And I was talking to a minister friend of mine uh, during the week, and he asked me, um, what are you preaching on? And I said, Acts 15. And he said, ah, the first general assembly. I was like, okay. Never heard of that, but okay, yeah. Now, of course, other churches, they don't agree with us here. And that's fine, right? It's fine. That's not to say it's not important, though. Sometimes I feel we come to things in the Bible that most agree, and I do too, is a secondary issue. And we say, ah, it's a secondary issue. And then totally ignore it. But if it's a secondary issue, then you should pay attention to it, you know, secondarily. As in, after you've dealt with the first things. But not never. You've got to give it some time and some thought. Now I know, you know, people can get wrapped up in it. 
and make it more important than it is. But it, there's still a definite place for it. And the way I have heard it described best is that if these things are good for the well-being of the ch- they're good for the well-being of the church, but not its essence. The well-being, but not its essence. And if you're interested, right? If you are interested in, in that, go back and read it, right? And ask yourself: Is James is he acting is he acting like a moderator or is he acting like a bishop? Does the congregation in Antioch make decisions on its own? Or do all the churches together have a say in each other's lives? That's the questions you have to answer. And um, but I want to say two other small things as well, right? If, if you're ever talking to someone from <clears throat> an Irish Catholic background, right? Who, or someone who's got no connection with Presbyterianism. And they want to know what Presbyterians are and how they do things. Just tell them it's run the exact same way that the GAA is run. Right? Because this is true. I, 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 each, uh, I, I've been a part of it. Each club has a group that runs it. They send representatives to a regional body who send representatives to a yearly general assembly. They even have a guy who acts like the moderator. So tell them that. And, you know, well, tell them that, right? And the second thing is, this is more serious, right? Pr- pray for your presbytery. I've talked to Christoph and my friends in class a good bit about this, and it just feels like the kind of passion and sincerity that is visible here is missing in our presbyteries at the moment. I mean, granted, they're not dealing with the same kind of essential things as they are here, but it still often feels like, some, it's some, feels like something that's a chore and not a glad obligation, right? So pray for them. Pray for a change. And if you're an elder, you know, think about, is there any way that you could bring some life to it? The other thing I want to talk about, I want you to think upon and pray from, from this passage, and for me this is certainly more important than, than to do with uh, church structure, is the role of representatives in this passage. Today we'd call them elders. And as you know, for the last... Uh, it feels like it's been a long time. We've been talking about electing elders, and we're still not there, actually. But and really, what I want you to see is that this is God's way of do, doing church. Congregations choosing wise and godly people to lead them. The church is not a pure democracy. Every, every decision is not voted on by every member. We don't all have a say in everything that the churches do. Now, there is a degree to which, you know, we're all empowered, and that is what we, we choose. As we've been doing, we choose our elders. But they are the ones to whom Jesus has given authority over us. And when the people in the Jerusalem make their decision, it's binding on the whole lot of them. And that can be hard for us to hear. Today's word is very egalitarian. The idea that folk have some degree of authority over us, it grates, it goes against the grain. No one is better than anyone else, the world around us says. So when we hear of people who supposedly have qualities that make them fit for authority over us to be our leaders, our natural response sometimes can be to resist it. And yet in opposition to, the, 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 to this, the Bible is clear. It says, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Have confidence in your leaders, submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that will be of no benefit to you. So they have authority over us. 
Yet I know from personal experience that I often try and make people prove themselves before I give them my allegiance. I wait a little bit to see what they're like. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, give your allegiance to your elders, and particularly to these new ones. Do it in such a way, as the writer of Hebrews is keen for us to do, that we would make their job a joy. A joy! Do you make your elders' job a joy? Is it a job? Or is, it a, is it a joy to lead you? Right. The last point. The gospel can surprise us. What was it? Why, why was Paul so angry? What was it that made Peter the apostle of the, to the Jews stand up and defend these Gentiles from needing to follow all the law of Moses to be saved? Well, to show you that, let, let me just go over the story that the Jews have been basing their life on, right? Once more, after the fall, Eve is promised that someone of her descendants will be the one, the one who crushes the head of the serpent. This is the first picture of the Messiah. Then things got very bad, but from all that evil, God chooses one family, Noah's family, and promises he won't destroy the world again. Then things get bad again, and again chooses one person, this time Abraham, and he tells him that through him, the whole world will be blessed. Fast forward a couple hundred years, we come to Moses, and there we see that in the light of the grace God has shown them, in the light of his love for them, they are to obey a set of laws that he gives them that will show them more clearly how he wants folks to live. And he'll give them laws that govern this sacrificial system that will enable them to draw close to him. Fast forward another couple of years, years, and he tells David that the Messiah will come through his family. So now the promises are getting clearer. Who this person will be, what he will do is getting more obvious. But it's not over yet because lastly God makes one more promise through the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, a day is coming when I will make a new covenant with you. When I will remember your sins no more. If you put all this together... Faithful Jews were obeying God's love out of love, or sorry, God's laws, sorry, out of love for all he had done for them, whilst waiting for someone to come who would crush the serpent, bless the whole world, and somehow do away with or somehow change the sacrificial system so that their sins would be once for all remembered no more. Now, who do you think that might be? Well, it's Jesus. But when Paul preaches this gospel and they say that the Gentiles must follow the law of Moses to be saved, it shows that the, that the Jews had misunderstood, some of them anyway, had misunderstood Jesus twice. Firstly, they'd corrupted the message of Moses from one where his laws were followed out of love for God and not to earn salvation. They turned that around. And secondly, they had missed that because Jesus was the one who was to come, the system was over. Viva la revolution. Why would you go back? The system is dead. If you think it's still alive and useful, then you just don't get it. A few weeks ago, I made the point that because of the gospel, the law never saves us. 
our obedience, our attempts at obedience, our performance are not sufficient to earn us salvation. And even though we've heard that, some of us have grown up in churches that preach that, some of us have preached sermons about it, even then we still try to use our performance to justify ourselves. But in no way does the law ever save. The law shows us our need of a saviour as we try to follow it and fail. The law at times curbs our actions and it's also a guide for how the Lord wants us to live. But it never saves us. And that's what Paul and Peter and James are defending here. Well, let me say this. You see, the temptation that the Pharisees had fallen under here is twofold. On one hand, they were still insisting that you must do something to be saved. But on the other hand, they totally missed that God was doing something new here. Or rather, he was doing what he had promised he would all along. Here's the thing, you see. I think this passage is primarily a fight over a proper understanding of the gospel. But there's a wider application here. If you're not a Christian, and you're relying on how good you are to be accepted of God, I'm telling you, you've got to change your mind right now. You're living under a delusion. right? I'm not going to ever say anything different to that. And if you die, you'll go before God with only what you've done in your life, in your hands. And that's it's not good enough. Ask the Spirit to come and help you to trust in the work of Jesus and not your own works. But if you're a Christian, I'm hoping most of us, if not all of us, are, and you have fallen foul of this temptation of the Pharisees where you're relying on all the things that you've always done to get you through, or where you have forgotten that at the right time God occasionally does some very new things. Well, and li- listen to this. This is, my, this is what I'm going to end it on. And this is true for all of us, but I want to say especially uh, to those of you who are near or in the middle of a, a change in your life. If you're going to college, you've just retired, you started a family, or kids have passed the baby stage or moved out of the house, or you've got a new job, or whatever. Take the time to say to the Lord, Lord, you know what I'm like. I know what I'm like. Have I been relying on something to please you other than your son? Or do you have something totally new for me to do? That I was too blind or fearful to see before? And please show me and send your spirit to help me follow you. And that's it. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for sending your son to be the ultimate sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Thank you that there is nothing we can do that can make you love us more or less. I pray for myself, for the elders, and for all my brothers and sisters here today, that you would open our eyes to any reluctance on our behalf to see the possibilities of what new things you could be doing with us. Amen.